as we approach the book of uh, Nehemiah once again, I was uh, not, not with you last week. I understand Jeff brought a wonderful message, a ruling elder over from Sister Church uh, Peace Presbyterian. But if you find your sermon outline, we'll go ahead and look right away at the introduction because it's in the form of a review and an outline of the first, chapter, first three chapters that we've seen together and chapter four that we'll look at today. I've got lots of P's in it for alliteration, for whatever that's worth. Uh, chapter one, we saw that Nehemiah prays and plans, this great leader. Remember, this, there is this threefold wave of leaders. First, Zerubbabel, and then Ezra. And we studied those together last year this time. And now Nehemiah, who is appointed, he was cupbearer to the king in the Persian court. And yet he heard of the situation in Jerusalem and the, the gates being down and the walls being pushed over and, and, and the populace being dispersed. And it, it cut him to the quick, it cut him to the heart. And he spent weeks fasting and praying regularly before the Lord. He and some of his compatriots. And when the time was right, he spoke up boldly and he asked for the king's favor, having bathed this in prayer. And he brought it to the king's attention. And he asked for a, a reversal of government policy, a reversal of foreign policy, that he might go back to the city and to oversee its rebuilding. And his prayer was answered. He found favor in the earthly king's sight. So chapter one, Nehemiah prays and plans. Number two, he, he pursues permission and prepares for the project. Then uh, chapter 3, last time, two weeks ago today, we saw that he proceeds with the building program. We talked about the people God uses. Whole families working together shoulder to shoulder. A few, a very few, refusing to join the work. But most folks working hard together. And, and today we will see that Nehemiah and all the rest, and they persevere amid peril. You persevere amid peril, and that will be not only today, but uh, the next couple of weeks as well. Nehemiah and all the rest perseveres amid peril. That brings us to God's word uh, once again. We are going to attend to the entire chapter. I have chosen today to break it down into three sections, and I'll read just the first section now before we commit this word again to the Lord. Here then, Nehemiah chapter 4, the first six verses. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone wall. Verse 4, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. 
So he built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, this is an interesting story, but if I am to be honest, it's a story that actually occurred in human history, in redemptive history, almost 2,500 years ago, and it took place over 6,000 miles from the spot in which I stand today. And yet, you have perfectly preserved your word down through the centuries. What we have before us, the sacred text of scripture is so faithful and so very close to the original autographs that the way of salvation is made clear. Maybe not just in one verse or one passage or or, or so, but as we compare scripture with scripture, the way of salvation through the one mediator between you and us is made evident. And we now know that the identity of the Christ is Jesus. And so we come to you in his name, in his authority, and we ask you to apply these things to our hearts and minds so that we will bear fruit that will remain and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. All right, some notes on the passage. First, uh, not constructive criticism, but rather destructive criticism. Destructive criticism in the form of a series that is five rhetorical questions in which the opposition, the angry and greatly enraged. Isn't that redundant? And you have to say that much about it? In Hebrew, it's up, you know, three words at least. Angry and greatly enraged. Angry, in the original language, it means furious, a burning sensation in the throat from rage. You ever been so enraged at somebody, something, yourself, life, circumstances, that you had a burning sensation in your throat? That's the description here. Greatly enraged. Vexation multiplied. This fellow was provoked. He was irked. Wonder what angers you. And so he jeered at them. He mocked. He derided. He, he scoffed at them, calling the Jews feeble. Only place this word shows up in the entire Old Testament. It means languid, or if you don't know that word, weak. Languid, lackadaisical, lazy. Who do these people think they are? Where do they get off, think that they're going to do this great task? It's too much for them. They can't do it. Well, they restore it for themselves. And this is a series of messages about restoration. This restoration project, this work, and how God is restoring a people for his own possession. Will they sacrifice? In other words, as some commentators have pointed out, will they, will they just hold a prayer meeting and it'll magically go up? 
Well, they finish in a day. Rome wasn't built in a day. Who, who are they to think that they can rebuild a, about two miles of a perimeter wall around this city, three to five in some places as much as eight feet thick? And this isn't a, 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 an architectural firm, an engineering firm with heavy construction equipment and boatloads of men to devote all their attention who have training and skill in these things? No. These are common people, lay people. We read the roster of them from chapter 3. How do they think they're going to do it? How will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Now, this might be a little bit of hyperbole. Uh, the gates were actually what was burned. Now, certainly some fire licked at the great stones, but they weren't so, commentators in archaeology demonstrates the stones were not so uh, consumed that they were brittle. But they, they, they were pushed over and down a hill on the east side. How are you going to get that back up in place? How are they going to do this great work? Destructive criticism from Sanballat, from nearby Haran, and his army of Samaritan syncretists. Remember, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan to the Jew. Who were the Samaritans? Just in brief, they were people who were remnants of the Canaanites, those who dwelled in the land. They were people who had been repatriated under the Assyrians, and they mixed religions. They were into designer religion. They accepted Yahweh, Jehovah God, but they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, only in the Torah. They rejected the Psalms and the, the prophets and such, and so the Jews saw them as ethnic and religious, forgive the word, half-breeds. People that they are warned about not to mix with, not in some sort of ethnocentrism, but rather out of covenant fidelity to the one true God, to Jehovah, to the Lord only. And these people would say, oh, sure, you know, he's, he's fine. And we also pray to the Canaanite fertility gods and such as well. And so when they ask to participate in the work, they're rejected for that reason. Guess what? It doesn't sit very well with them. By the time you get to chapter 13, you see that both Sanballat and Tobiah have connections with some people of prominence still left in Jerusalem, uh, through marriage at least. Tobiah talks about a fox there, verse, verse 3. I, I almost feel like the, the character of Tobiah, it's almost like watching a, an animated movie by, I don't know, Disney or Pixar or somebody. I almost see him as the, the little wormy sidekick going, yeah, yeah, and what they're building, if a fox jumped down and he'd break down their wall. Except it's not a cartoon. And it's, it, it's, it's not funny. This is spiritual opposition to the people of God. Sanballat is not the only one that's angry. However, though, in this passage, although what they have to say was dripping with sarcasm and venom and invective, He's not the only one angry. It says so in the prayer recorded in verse 4. I think Nehemiah is angry. And he says that God is angry. I put in bold print 
this very bold prayer that Nehemiah prays. Turn it back on their heads. God, in, in your reversing power, turn this back on them. We, we know what captivity is like. We know what it's like to be away from your home and away from your land. Let them have a taste of it. They have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. He addresses God. Another sort of arrow prayer. You remember we talked about long form and short form prayer? Long form, weeks and weeks, bathing it in prayer. A quick arrow prayer. King asks him a question, gulp, swallow, arrow prayer. Lord, here I go. Here goes nothing. Be with me, Lord. Grant me favor, Lord. And he goes for it. Here's another sort of arrow prayer in the face of opposition, saying that God has provoked them, ESV. If you're looking at another translation this morning, doing a little translation analysis, you may be wondering, uh, NAS, for example, says you know, they've demoralized the builders. Uh, there's a little uncertainty here as to the uh, word in the original language. But the effect is the same either way, that the dignity and honor of God is offended either directly or indirectly by offending his people and the mission that they are on. Provoke God to anger by this abuse of his people and treating them with contempt and by their syncretism. Now, if you're a believer like I am today and you're hearing this and you're thinking, oh, Nehemiah was a great guy. You know, we can learn leadership principles from him. He was awesome, you know. And then you come across this prayer and you go, wow, that wasn't very nice. Don't forgive their sins. Oh, gee, is that what a believer does? You know, that doesn't seem very neighborly or, or nice. Sometimes we, we make an artificial and wrong bifurcation of Old Testament and New. We say, well, you know, well, I guess that's the God of the Old Testament, God of judgment. I like the God of the New Testament, God of love. Well, first of all, God doesn't have parts and he doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is completely holy and he is completely loving and merciful at the same time. And sometimes we don't do justice to Jesus. We don't round out our portrait of Jesus. We think, well, Jesus just wanted to be nice and meek and mild and everybody hold hands and, and have great unity. Oh, really? What about the seven woes in Matthew 23? Didn't flag it, but I'll read just a couple of verses. One of the woes. Matthew 23, and I commend to you that chapter look at these seven woes that he pronounces there. But here I'll just read from verses 27 and 8. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These are the words of Jesus, the nice guy, the turn-the-other-cheek guy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs with outwardly, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Calling people hypocrites to their faces, saying that you look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. If you're a note taker, other passages in the same vein, 
that we can't uh, really explore further this morning, but if you're a jotter, jot Psalm 123, verses 2 and 3. Psalm 123, verses 2 and 3. Also, Jeremiah 18, 23. And from the New Testament, Revelation 6.10, How long, Lord, how long, O Lord, will you allow this to go on? Will not the judge of the earth deal justly? This is, the tone of this is almost an imprecatory prayer, if you know, if you know that word. It, it's calling for God's judgment, calling for God's righteous judgment. Not inappropriately to satisfy your own ego, like the disciples said, shall we call down, you know, whatever from, from heaven? And Jesus said, said no. But to defend the honor of God. One day, there will come a day where God will set the record straight. Well, what do we have in our next section? A call to arms. Look at verses 7 through 14, Nehemiah 4. I'll read. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they'll not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, ten times, you, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This, too, is the word of God. It's a call to arms. There, verse 7 indicates they, they're surrounded. You've got Sanballat representing the north and slightly to the east, and uh, Tobiah next, the Arabs more to the south. The Ashdodites, first time they've been mentioned in, in this book, they're, they're the, uh, the sea towards the Philistia, the sea peoples over towards uh, the west. In other words, they're surrounded is the point. And there's this plot. Folks have conspired. These disparate peoples, they've conspired. They're in league together. Sometimes people do conspire together against God's people. You see that in Acts 23, the conspiracy against Paul. Jot that one down. Take a look. Acts 23, verses 12 and following. The uh, conspiracy against Paul, it was found out by his uh, young nephew, by the way. Drats foiled again. And so what Nehemiah has them do is put prayer and putting feet to their prayers. Verse 9, right? We prayed and set a guard, both things. Prayer and putting feet to your prayers, call to action. 
guard shifts. But the ridicule on the part of the opposition was working, at least in part. Verse 10 identifies there was a problem with morale. People started to say, we're tired. I mean, think about it. We, we looked last time, chapter 3, at the people that God uses. Some of these people, they're regular, regular, they were merchants and craftsmen. Some of them were goldsmiths. Some of them were perfumers. That was their occupation, and now they're wall builders. They're tired. Probably got blisters, aching muscles. We're tired. I, I, don't, I don't know if we can do it. They're beginning to lose heart. The ridicule was working. There's too much rubble. There's too much debris. I'm tired. I'm thinking about quitting. And the opposition escalates. Too. They go from mocking to murder, or at least threats of murder. So they go from sticks and stones can break my bones and words can never hurt me, to now, okay, well, we'll hurt you. <laughs> we'll sneak in among you. Now, maybe they weren't going to be so bold as to come as an army and an invading force, you know, Sanballat's whole Samaritan army. Maybe they're not going to come because Nehemiah has the royal decree from Artaxerxes. So maybe they're not going to do that. But they'll slip in among them. They'll send assassins and, and, and do something vicious before anybody even knows and, and slip off. Nobody the wiser. And create chaos. And make morale go down even worse. Verse 12. Ten times the people, out, the, the simple people, the country peasants, country folk, Word was, was out there. And it says it came 10 times, probably just a representative number. Over and over, the well-meaning people from nearby were coming and saying, word on the street is, well, they may have meant well, but it didn't have a very good effect. It wasn't very encouraging. People are saying, And we've got more strategy, verse 13, where he stations people. Men to stand in the gap, reminiscent of Ezekiel 22, verse 30. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me in the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. You willing to stand in the gap? You willing to do something for the kingdom of God? He stationed them by clans. James Boyce says of this, Nehemiah knew they would fight most fiercely when the lives of their own families were in jeopardy. And so Nehemiah rallies the troops. He looks, he sees the fear among them, he sees them beginning to lose heart, and he rallies the troops. Reminds me of uh, a scene in Braveheart where they're outnumbered. The, the Scots are by the British troops at Stirling. Forgive my 
poor brogue, but I can't resist. Wallace shows up on the scene. Sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace. And one young soldier doubts his identity. He says something about that. And he says, I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? A veteran soldier says, fight against that? Meaning an overwhelmingly large and better prepared army. No, we will run and we will live. Wallace says, I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they cannot take our freedom? And that rallies the troops. And they fight. Nehemiah rallies the troops in verse 14. He says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord? What does that mean, remember the Lord? Had they forgotten uh, uh, about him? It means to call him to mind intentionally. It means to recall his past deeds. Over and over we see this in God's word in the Psalms, right? One generation shall recount thy faithfulness to the next. You and I, just like the people of old, are a stubborn and stiff-necked generation. We are people of short memory. Not just, I can't remember where I laid my keys or my glasses, but we're short to remember God's provision in our lives. He says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. That's the God we serve, great and awesome. And he calls them to fight to do battle. So how does it go? Our last paragraph, verses 15 through 23, Nehemiah chapter 4. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us, took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. 
A few more notes on the passage. Rally the troops. God, God is the one that gets the credit. You know, Nehemiah doesn't say, well, you know, folks, I, I fished it out. I, I sniffed their plot out by my spies. I have, you know, my, my sources tell me. He says, God spoiled the plan for forces to come from without and create havoc among them. God did it. God broke it. Verses 16 through 18, half of them worked. So now you've got tired people who aren't really trained for this, now kind of a militia, and they're working in shifts, so only half of them were working with one hand tied behind their back. Well, not exactly. The other hand with a weapon. And yet the work proceeds. He says, rally to the trumpet. Avengers assemble. Gather to the trumpet. When you and I think about a trumpet, I think many times, well, my son played trumpet all through high school. He was a good trumpet player. We think of a brass horn, a shiny instrument, or a, a bugle or something. Can they see this on the camera, Bob? Jonathan, is it okay if I lift this up? Okay, this, this is the horn. This is the trumpet that they had. Uh, our friend Jonathan Pierce here has been to this area. I prayed about, you know, 6,000 miles away. He has been there. He and Vivian spent time there. He's got this shofar. It's a ram's horn, and you would blow, and I'm not going to attempt to do that, and make a particular sound, and that was used for the trumpet. Could they see that okay? Should I go closer? Let's see. Rally the troops. Our God will fight for us, through us, and for us. We, if we had time, we'd investigate other passages in the Bible where it talks about God fighting for his people, sometimes just giving them supernatural sort of strength, other times scaring the armies without human intervention, just doing something, causing some sort of act in creation that, that, that scared the opposing force, and they took off. There's multiple stories like that. Our God will fight for us. This is God-centered morale boosting. It's not just a pep talk. The fighting workforce, as they are termed by Derek Kidner, the fighting workforce, the end of the passage, verses 21 through 23, they worked sunrise till... Sunset, they worked until twilight, overtime. They worked as night watchmen. They slept in their clothes, and Nehemiah continues to show solidarity. He shows that he's one of them. He didn't go off out, out of town to the, a, a country hideaway to the governor's mansion somewhere. He was one of them. So my biggest observation on Nehemiah as a leader is that he didn't allow himself to get sidetracked. He didn't allow himself to get sidetracked. He kept laser-like focus on his mission. He didn't let criticism stop him. He kept going. He didn't let threats stop him. He kept going. He didn't let obstacles, like hard work, stop him. He kept going. He didn't let waning morale stop him. 
He kept going and he kept them going. How? How did he persevere? Was it just because by sheer force of personality? Uh, because he had great parents? No. I would say to you that Nehemiah had complete confidence in God's involvement and God's strength. In this passage, it's indicated, and some of the things I put in bold to highlight this on your sermon outline, God is involved, active, and in control. That's how Nehemiah believed in the Lord. God was active, uh, involved, active, and in control. God is great and awesome. As he says, God will fight for us. So shifting gears now to some New Testament elaborations and applications. And I would just remind you that kind of my take on Nehemiah is that they built a physical wall. This is under letter C in your outline. They built a physical wall that held spiritual significance. We do the spiritual work of building up the church which may have physical and practical outworkings. And in terms of making transition from 2,500 years ago almost to now, J.I. Packer says, in local churches, any leader who values order above ardor, what's ardor? Fervency or zeal. Any leader who values order above ardor and routine above revival who pours cold water on um, visionaries as soon as they propose that something be done, risks becoming a new Sanballat or Tobiah. So what do we do? I've got three points for you. And I'll give them to you quickly, but we're going to talk about them, so don't shut off just because you got your last blanks in it up front. Count the cost. Expect opposition and prepare for and engage in spiritual warfare. Count the cost. Are you ready to be ridiculed? Are you prepared to be ostracized? I've mentioned this before in Nehemiah, and I've given this cross-reference, Luke 14, about counting the cost, and I'm, I'm, it's almost noon, so I'm still not going to take the time. I'm afraid to read it today. But I'd like you to read it. Are you ready to be ridiculed? This morning in Sunday School in God's Providence, we talked about persecution of the church, and Kevin DeYoung in the message we looked at cited Matthew 5.11, because a lot of times you think, well, people aren't coming to murder me because of my faith in Christ. Maybe some parts of the world, but not here. Some of you say, yeah, but it's coming. You, you may be a prophet, I don't know. But Matthew 5 and 11 talks about scorn and ridicule and people despise you and, and revile you and say false things against you on account of me. And that kind of persecution is already happening. Number two, expect opposition. 2 Timothy 3.12 all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I have yet to meet a Christian who has made that verse their life verse. I love claiming God's promises. Well, claim that one. All who even desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be 
persecuted. It's a promise. James Boyce said, in an increasingly secular culture such as we have in the United States today, we must expect opposition of this nature and we must expect it to increase both in volume and intensity. Volume, the amount of, intensity, the depth, the duration, right? By the way, friends, he wrote that, goodness gracious, he wrote that over 30 years ago now, before some of what we've seen in the cultural winds that blow and the tide in some ways turning, much less a partial shutdown and the rise of the nuns and people finding, pardon me, sometimes convenient reasons for leaving the church. Expect opposition. In Acts 17, just a reminder, the end of Paul's preaching at Mars, he indicates that there's only three responses when you share the faith. Some will believe, some will say, we shall hear you again concerning this. And what do the other, what's the other group do? They scoff, they mock, they ridicule. So we ought to expect that. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Folly, foolishness. To those who are perishing, those who don't know the Lord, those who don't know Jesus. It seems like foolishness to them. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. That's the gospel, right? Christ crucified and risen. There's certainly much more it can be said. But that's the heart of it. Verse 30. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. What's that? That's union with Christ. You're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is everything to us, people. He's right standing before God. He is our righteousness. None are righteous, no, not one, Romans 3. But there is a righteous one. Acts 22-ish. There is one who is righteous. He perfectly obeyed his father. And we must trust in him. Prepare for and engage in spiritual warfare. Packer, speaking of keeping your head while others panic, and people are panicking in the culture today. People are panicking in the world today. People are panicking in the church today. And he says that knowing God is not just an intellectual orthodoxy, but an un unflagging, all-absorbing passion for closeness to God himself. Friend, I hope you have that. I hope it's growing in you. I hope it's growing in me. Not just an intellectual orthodoxy, but an unflagging, all-absorbing passion for closeness to God himself. Think of Peter jumping out of that boat and swimming to get to Jesus. That's what I want to be like. Prepare for and engage in spiritual warfare, which Packer says is the real theme of Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6. And he calls Satan the enemy of God, God's people, God's work, and God's praise. 
Satan's the enemy of God, God's people, God's work, and God's praise. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, talk about the weapons of our, our warfare. Look at that one. I'll go ahead and read for us Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Here, here's, I don't know if y'all can see this very well. Um, Christian lady gave this to me. It's representative of uh, armor back at that time. I can't exactly vouch for the historicity of it or whatever, but it gives you an idea. I'm going to get it closer here for a minute. But the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, all, all that kind of thing. Do you ever pray? And I, I know a, a dear godly woman in the, at my previous call that she would pray through the armor of God every morning. Each piece put on by prayer we just sang. Do you remember singing this morning about the gospel armor? Each piece put on by prayer. Familiar words, but don't miss the start. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Friends, that's the Christian life. It's not pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's being strong in someone else's strength. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all this, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, like ridicule striking at your morale. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Did you catch those imperatives? Be strong. Put on. Take up three times. Stand firm two or three times. Keep alert. And know that God will be vindicated in the end. With that, I would close. God will be vindicated in the end. Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2 in particular. He alone will receive glory. And we would do well to remember that our perfect prophet and priest is also the perfect king. And he executes his office as king of all kings as our standards tell us, by subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. Christ is victor. Take heart. Christ has overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, would you cause us to take heart for the right reasons? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.